So we're in Revelation part seven, uh, which is the last part in our seven part division. Uh, and this is the consummation of all things. So we are coming close to finishing the book of Revelation, which brings us to the end of um, world history, and then even takes us a bit beyond world history. But this night, we are focusing on a special topic, primarily because it's not described in Revelation, um, but it occurs in the progress of the text. So we want to see what's going on uh, kind of behind the scenes, what's not told to us in Revelation. And a lot of that has to do with the millennial kingdom or the messianic kingdom. Uh, Revelation kind of gets a bit of a bad rap. <clears throat> Uh, especially in the area of uh, of the millennium, because it doesn't give us much detail, but those who focus most of their time on New Testament or New Testament interpretation, or those who have believed in uh, replacement theology, look at the revelation of the kingdom as existing only in Revelation, um, because it's mentioned by name or uh, by description here. And so they think we uh, are just pulling a bunch of things out of thin air uh, as we go and describe the messianic kingdom. But what they don't realize, because their theology has kind of pigeonholed them into uh, not being able to read the Old Testament as the Old Testament was written and designed to be understood by its first, uh, by its original audience, uh, they don't realize that the topic of the kingdom actually has. Uh, probably more space in the text than the entire New Testament um, is long. So a vast, vast, vast majority of the Old Testament describes the coming messianic kingdom. Most people, when they read the Old Testament, they spiritualize uh, those passages, or else they uh, make them apply to the kingdom under David that existed in the Old Testament, uh, which never actually lived up to the description of it by the prophets and in the Psalms. And also bearing in mind that David wrote a lot of the Psalms and David described the messianic kingdom in many of his Psalms. Um, and he described it as a kingdom not yet here, uh, even while he was ruling. It's very clear that this kingdom uh, must be future. And we only get about, uh, actually even of the 15 or so verses in Revelation that have to do with the millennium, most of those verses aren't even describing the millennium, but uh, things adjacent to the millennial kingdom. Uh, and that's because so much is written about it in the Old Testament that it would be very redundant to record a detailed analysis of the kingdom in Revelation. There was so much uh, Revelation already present that John really had no reason to have that revealed to him. It's already revealed in all of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, so most of what we look at tonight will be Old Testament. But as we get started, we do want to see what Revelation does contribute to our understanding of the kingdom. Uh, the topic is in Revelation at all, uh, simply because there is information that God is going to give to Daniel or to, uh, to John um, about the kingdom that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. And the first thing is the length of the kingdom. The kingdom was only ever spoken of as uh, a future coming kingdom. And for the first time here, it is revealed to John that the kingdom would have a limit, a time limit. Uh, 
the kingdom is going to last for 1,000 years. Uh, this as well is debated, they say, because this is the only place in scripture uh, where the kingdom is uh, described as a thousand years, and because Revelation is a uh, book full of symbols, that a thousand years cannot be taken literally. Well, two things. There is not one number in Revelation that must be taken figuratively, uh, but there are many numbers in Revelation that cannot be taken figuratively. Uh, so it's really a backwards argument if we want to base it on the character of the book. Uh, we would have to rule out uh, any possibility of a literal uh, reading of a thousand years uh, before we could read it uh, as figurative, uh, since there is no indication in the text that it should be taken figuratively. Usually this is just based on people uh, already having presuppositions about the kingdom, and so saying it doesn't fit their theology, it must be figurative. Uh, however, this uh, this number cannot be figurative uh, simply because it is repeated so many times within the text, uh, the specific length of it. Uh, repetition generally drives home a point, and to repeat something two or three times uh, would make it almost irrefutable. Uh, but here, the exact specific length of the Millennial Kingdom is repeated six times in just these few verses. Uh, another thing is, God doesn't need to say something twice to make it true. He just needs to say something once to make it true. Um, so those arguments are very poor arguments. So here in Revelation 22, we see that Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. We see in Revelation 23 that um, he's going to be bound until the end of those thousand years are completed. In Revelation 4D, we see that the uh, reign with Christ of those uh, saints is going to be 1,000 years. Revelation 25, uh, the second resurrection is going to take place after the 1,000 years are completed. And uh, the, those who reign with Christ will reign with him for 1,000 years, again repeated. Uh, these repetitions of 1,000 years makes it absolutely clear that the millennial kingdom will last for 1,000 literal years. And that's why it's called a millennial kingdom, because it will last for one millennium. <clears throat> the second addition that uh, John makes to our understanding of the kingdom is the way that the kingdom will come to a close. Uh, it's possible to uh, understand from Old Testament texts uh, that the kingdom will have an end, at least um, a sort of end. It doesn't actually conclude in the sense that uh, Jesus never stops reigning, uh, but the structure of the kingdom on this earth will come to a close as Christ's rule becomes a universal rule and not just a global rule. So the manner of the conclusion of the messianic kingdom, which will fulfill the promises to Israel, is that Satan is going to be released from his temporary prison, and at that time he's going to deceive many of the nations. And uh, specifically, many people from the nations. So, um, whole nations may ally themselves with him. It's specifically the people, uh, the mortals in the kingdom, that may align themselves with Satan. And we even see that there is going to be many, many, many uh, at that time who do ally themselves with Satan. Um, for this to happen, we do need mortals in the kingdom. 
Uh, there are plenty of uh, indications that there will be mortals in the kingdom. In fact, the more surprising thing that we come to learn in the New Testament is that there will be immortals in the kingdom. Uh, mortals in the kingdom is kind of taken for granted. Uh, however, the uh, resurrection of David, for example, or the presence of resurrected saints uh, is going to uh, make the millennial kingdom one of the most peculiar uh, periods in history yet. Um, but the millennial kingdom will terminate uh, with the defeat of Satan, the final defeat of Satan, uh, where Christ will finally put away death forever. Uh, that's described also in, um, in well, it's described uh, adjacently in 1 Corinthians 15 towards the end. <clears throat> so that's Revelation's contribution to the concept of the um, messianic kingdom. And it's because of that contribution that in the church age, we've generally relied on calling it the uh, millennial kingdom. Messianic kingdom may be a better description because it takes into account more than just the length of the kingdom, uh, but the actual features and characteristics of it, which is uh, the direct rule of the Messiah over this world. But we do want to look at the basis for these covenants, the reason why they, why, or the uh, basis for the kingdom, uh, which is in the covenants, which is the reason why uh, earth just simply cannot pass away or even transition into another world without the, uh, without the kingdom being fulfilled. The foundation of this, the whole um, messianic kingdom is the Abrahamic co covenant, which has three aspects to it. Um, <clears throat> but the base or the uh, the idea behind the Abrahamic covenant is that God made Abraham an unconditional promise uh, that he would rule over the land of Israel. And in doing this, God was reestablishing his mediatorial rule over the earth uh, that was lost through Adam. And so though God remained the ruler of the universe, uh, God's uh, subjects, his kings over this earth, mankind, had chosen to align themselves with Satan instead. And so God has a plan and a program to affect a rule over this creation. And until that rule occurs, uh, this earth won't, will not pass away. And so he establishes the kingdom or the head or the, of that federal uh, rule uh, through the nation of Israel. And through that nation, a king would arise who would rule over the earth as God had intended Adam to do. So Genesis 13, 14 says, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Notice he was not just giving it to his descendants. Um, so we cannot say this is just looking forward to a uh, future reign uh, of Abraham's children, but this is for Abraham as well. Abraham himself never received the uh, this promise that he would uh, possess this land. And so Abraham must possess this land sometime in the future, and that means he must be resurrected into the uh, kingdom. Jesus makes the same argument in refuting the Sadducees' um, disbelief in a physical resurrection. Uh, Genesis 13, 6 continues, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, 
then your descendants can also be numbered. The Abrahamic covenant uh, came with three facets. Uh, he did promise land to Abraham. He also pro promised descendants to Abraham. Uh, we could call this the seed promise. And he also promised a blessing to Abraham. So we've got land, seed, and blessing. The land covenant is expanded to be its own covenant uh, that feeds out of this Abrahamic covenant. And this was given to Israel after they left the exile in, uh, in Exodus and were returning to that land to take possession of it. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Moses writes, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will regather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you back. Uh, or will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and will multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, uh, so that you may live. So here in the land covenant as well, we see not only the promise of the land being possessed by uh, Abraham's descendants, but we see this promise of descendants as well. And we also see the promise of that coming blessing where their hearts will be circumcised. The seed covenant uh, was reaffirmed to David uh, during the Davidic kingdom. First Chronicles 17, 11 uh, records the messianic portion of it. It says, when your, uh, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, in other words, when Daniel's dead and gone, uh, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Now, Solomon was to uh, succeed David on the throne, but he would not sit on that throne forever. And uh, David, or uh, Solomon, was a, a descendant directly from David. He was not a descendant from his descendants. Uh, so this is looking to uh, a descendant of David that would come after Solomon, uh, and that becomes Jesus the Messiah. First Chronicles 17.13 continues, I will be his father and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you, speaking of Saul. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And so there are four eternal promises that are made to David uh, in the Davidic covenant or the seed promise. That is an eternal descendant, someone who would be able to sit on the throne forever, an eternal household or a dynasty, an eternal throne or a point or a place of rule, and an eternal kingdom over which to rule. The third facet of the Abrahamic covenant was the promise of blessing, um, and the new covenant was made in order to amplify and confirm uh, this promise of blessing. Jeremiah 31.31 31, 31 
says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, there will be a uh, time in the, Israel's future where they are not controlled by the Mosaic law, but by a different covenant that God will make with them that replaces the Mosaic covenant. Um, and that will be in operation during the during the kingdom. And so the covenant that was in operation during the Davidic covenant was the Mosaic covenant. And that Davidic kingdom in the past was not the Messianic kingdom to come. My covenant, which they broke, that Messianic covenant, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. It continues, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not again, or they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, this is a pretty uh, important and uh, intriguing statement that's made here about the new covenant and the timing in which it will come. Uh, it appears here that this is speaking of a not only regenerated people, but a glorified people. Uh, that means that Israel very well may be translated themselves into the kingdom rather than entering in as mortals. Uh, <clears throat> that's something we can observe uh, somewhat in the subtext, so we can't be dogmatic about it. Uh, but there's something very unique about Israel and Israel's role in the Messianic kingdom. They, and they alone, will have a king directly over them that is not a mortal, but a resurrected uh, saint. The other uh, nations of the world will have a mortal king over them, but will also have uh, resurrected saints um, under whom that mortal king will rule. Israel, on the other hand, will not have a mortal king over them at all. Uh, they will be ruled by the resurrected David uh, under the authority of Christ, who rules over all things. And so it's only fitting, as uh, not only with these descriptions of how the new covenant will be fulfilled in and through uh, Israel, uh, but also in the description of uh, the government of their kingdom that we'll look at later, that <clears throat> Israel may very well be uh, non-mortal during the kingdom, meaning that the Gentiles will still have mortals, uh, but Israel will have been completed uh, by the time uh, the kingdom begins, so that there will not be mortals, but only uh, glorified uh, saints in the kingdom. And that is uh, really the only way that we get Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. Uh, these are people now without sin natures. Their sin nature has been stripped um, from them, and they have only the nature of Christ, and they have been conformed to the Messiah. So that is the basis of the kingdom uh, from the covenants. These promises uh, are really the, the joints that hold the Old Testament together. Uh, the prophets, as well, are going to describe many things about the kingdom, 
also the psalmists, uh, primarily David, whenever David is looking forward to righteousness or longing for the righteousness of God, uh, he never looks for it on this earth in any eternal sense. He always looks forward to the kingdom. Uh, sometimes we don't realize just how many of the Psalms are prophetic, looking forward to that future time where Christ will rule perfectly on this earth, where many of its conditions will be restored to Eden-like conditions, where the uh, devil, Satan, will be locked away, unable to influence the world. And so the only thing left in the world that might uh, cause any unrighteousness is the mortals who have retained their sin nature. However, they'll have a perfect king ruling over them in perfect righteousness. And so that is what David constantly looks forward to in his psalms. Um, so we're going to look at a few psalms that describe the coming kingdom. And we will look at how the prophets uh, describe the coming kingdom as they long for the righteousness of Israel. <laughs> 